This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Last July, SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw appeared for her nomination hearing before the Senate Banking Committee. The compliance deadline for Regulation Best Interest and Form CRS had recently passed, and issues relating to the new rules were hot topics at the hearing. In response to a question from Senator Sherrod Brown, Commissioner Crenshaw explained, I think it is critical that the SEC work with the Office of Compliance, Inspections and Examinations and FINRA to drive successful compliance with the rule. That means working with the firms to make sure Form CRS is actually providing information that is useful to investors and that it is information they can understand. It is also working with firms to make sure that their policies and procedures are appropriate to mitigate conflicts of interest. And to the degree they are not, we have to be willing to hold those firms accountable. And so we need to make sure over time that rules are actually changing the status quo for investors. And I would look forward to, if confirmed, working with the staff to make sure that that is accomplished. Commissioner Crenshaw was indeed confirmed, and since that time, she spent a lot of time working on regulation best interest, form CRS, and a host of investment advisor and broker-dealer regulatory and enforcement issues, with a view to achieving the SEC's investor protection mandate. We're fortunate to have Commissioner Crenshaw with us to talk about the investment advisor and broker-dealer regulatory and enforcement landscape today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you again, Chris. This is a, a big episode for us in a, in a couple respects. Uh, first, we are very fortunate to have with us Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, but also, Chris, this is episode 40. It's a little bit of a milestone, buddy. We're, we're over the hill, Kurt, and, and it makes sense uh, that we're doing this in kind of what I'll call your Super Bowl as we talk about uh, a lot of issues that you've, you've repeatedly brought up on the podcast uh, in our past 39 episodes. So we'll be sure to touch on those uh, as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. As I indicated up top, we're going to be talking about some investment advisor and broker-dealer issues today. We're going to focus in particular on regulation best interest and a little bit on form CRS. I I put one on the scoreboard. Uh, We're also going to talk a little bit about the role of SEC enforcement and the commission's corporate penalties framework. We'll round out the conversation uh, with a chat about cybersecurity risks that impact the capital markets. And with that, Chris, Why don't you tell us a little bit about Commissioner Crenshaw? SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw was appointed by President Donald J. Trump, unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate, and sworn into office on August 17th of 2020. Commissioner Crenshaw has a range of securities law and policy experience. She served as counsel to Commissioners Kara Stein and Rob Jackson, a friend of our podcast. In those roles, she focused on strengthening investor protections in our increasingly complex markets. Commissioner Crenshaw also served as a staff attorney in the Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examinations, which listeners will know by our shorthand, OC, and is now the Division of Exams. Commissioner Crenshaw also served on the staff in the Division of Investment Management. In addition, Commissioner Crenshaw currently serves as a captain in the United States Army Reserve JAG Corps. Before she joined the SEC, Commissioner Crenshaw practiced law at Sutherland in D.C., 
where she represented public companies, broker-dealers, and investment advisors on complex securities law investigations and enforcement matters. Commissioner Crenshaw, I'm sure we could go on and on about your bio, but we wanted to give a brief background. Welcome to Insecurities. Thank you for having me here today. It's great to be here, and I look forward to talking about what appears to be one of your most favorite uh, topics, uh, regulation best interest. And before we get into the meat of it, let me just uh, get it out of the way, the standard government disclaimer, that the views I express today are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of the commission, the other commissioners, or the SEC staff. Well, Kurt, uh, I guess I can just unplug, right? This is your episode. If we're going to talk about Reg BI, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to join the recording last uh, last episode. This one I know is is right up your alley. It is absolutely. Um, you know, I, th- I feel like we've talked about this a few times, <laughs> on, you know, on past episodes, including with a little bit with Cliff Kirsch a couple weeks ago. You know, I won't go through the whole litany of episodes where we've talked about it at last count. I think we're at about 20 out of our 40 yeah, episodes. Good, good, Reg hit, BI at least came there, up. Kurt. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes it doesn't count because you're just making fun of me. But anyway, before before we get into the uh, into the meat of the conversation, um, for any of our listeners who haven't tuned into those past episodes, I want to say just a few words about regulation best interest to sort of set the scene. I've, I've whittled this down from a six-page diatribe to about a paragraph, so, so here it is. In June 2019, the SEC approved Regulation Best Interest, which establishes a new standard of conduct for registered broker-dealers that provide investment advice to retail investors. In many respects, the rule expands on FINRA's old suitability requirement. Essentially, it requires that broker-dealers only recommend investments or strategies that are in their clients' best interests. To that end, broker-dealers must always put their clients' interests ahead of their own and actively take steps to eliminate, mitigate, or disclose conflicts of interest. Reg BI is a so-called principles-based rule that leaves many key terms, including the term best interest, undefined. After several legal challenges that sought to set the rule aside, Reg BI went live on June 30, 2020. The rule continues to be a topic of conversation and perhaps a source of confusion for the industry and investors alike. And that's why we want to unpack it a little bit more with Commissioner Crenshaw today. Uh, So, Commissioner, I mean, just to start off the top, as Kurt mentioned, Reg BI, not only on this podcast, but in the the securities markets at large, is is a perennial hot topic. Uh, Talk to us about your overall thoughts on the rule, uh, you know, some of the elements that Kurt just brought up, as well as your take on on how it's being enforced and, and reviewed today. To start with, I I just want to reiterate, I've said this before, and it was probably clear in my testimony that Kurt went through uh, earlier, but uh, I agree with the goals of the rule. Uh, The point is to reduce conflicts of interest, to enhance the quality of recommendations, and to align industry practices with investors' actual expectations. Uh, Investors should be getting high-quality advice that isn't tainted by conflicts of interest. And this is true regardless of whether they work with a broker-dealer or an investment advisor, uh, although, as, as you mentioned, uh, regulation best interest focuses on broker-dealers. And now that the rule has been in effect for almost a year, I think the question that I am most interested in answering is whether it is actually achieving those goals. As we move forward, you'll see I'm, I'm really focused on Uh, getting the information uh, that's going to help us at the commission make that assessment effectively. 
I know you've uh, spoken about that recently, and we're going we're gonna to come on to that in just a little bit. Um, but sticking at, at sort of a high level here, uh, you know, there have been some criticisms that regulation best interest, uh, because it's principles-based, is, is simply vague. And we've talked a little bit about that on the show in the past. You know, what does that mean and who gets to decide what the principles mean? There are quite a few in the market that that think it should have been more prescriptive, maybe include more definitions. So uh, what, what do you think about that, the principles-based versus prescriptive models? As a general matter, I believe it's important, and, and I do think it's possible, uh, to strike the right balance between giving enough clarity to ensure that firms understand what is expected of them, uh, and in a way that offers what I will say are meaningful investor protections uh, without being overly prescriptive, uh, which could result in a rule that is perhaps too narrow or could also inadvertently discourage firms uh, from innovating in ways that deliver uh, better products, better services, or better outcomes for investors. But what I think your question is is getting at is uh, whether regulation best interest provided too much flexibility to firms to determine how to comply with the rule. Uh, and, and whether we struck the right balance in regulation best interest, I think, is an outstanding question. Uh, and, and again, uh, I think you'll probably be hearing this a lot from me today. I am focused at looking at the evidence uh, to understand how firms are complying with the rule uh, and the impact this has on investors. So I think this is going to be an iterative process. And I understand that being the non-attorney on the podcast, the accounting world and generally accepted accounting principles, you know, we deal with these issues all the time, you know, whether it's a very nuanced and unique element of, of accounting for a very specific set of assets or just the broad based application of some of these uh, things like revenue recognition. I mean, I can't think of a, a larger principles based impact uh, for that. So uh, completely understand uh, the accounting world hasn't figured it out yet either, uh, unfortunately. So uh, I don't think I'm upsetting too many people by saying <laughs> saying that on the podcast. But, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of that investor protection. And, and one of the things that has come into a sharper focus in the past few years has been that retail investor. And that's up until, you know, the January kind of change in the way that the markets were interacting with retail investors. So it sounds like, uh, you know, from your perspective, Commissioner, that that Reg BI might be flexible enough to, to protect those retail investors. Can you speak a little bit about the, the retail uh, focus of, of the rule and how it might impact them? I think regulation best interests provides tools that help ensure the rule provides meaningful protections to retail investors. Uh, I am hopeful that we can use the tools within the rule uh, and work with brokers uh, to really make it as effective as possible for retail investors. And, and we talk about using those tools. You know, how will the commission exercise its authority with, with utilizing Reg BI, whether that's through a tools-based approach or through an enforcement approach? Uh, you know, how do you see retail investors being dealt with or, or being protected from the commission? So I think we could do so in a variety of ways. Uh, as you mentioned, as you all know, I have a background in exams. It's, it's near and dear to my heart. For me, the first step would be through the exam process. Uh, and as part of that process, I think our staff can work with firms to make sure uh, two things, that we know what firms are doing in response to regulation best interest, uh, but also as part of that process, making sure that firms know what our expectations are 
in terms of how to meet the different obligations and what kinds of practices uh, might raise concerns at the commission. And right now we're in the middle of that process uh, and we're gathering good information on how firms are implementing the rule. And just to be clear, it's not just the SEC. FINRA and the states are, are looking at this comprehensively as well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to working with them to understand from their perspective exactly how firms are carrying out their best interest obligation, um, specifically when they're making recommendations to investors. Um, and again, how they're mitigating the various conflicts of interest. And I think uh, importantly here, in a roundtable in October of last year, uh, the staff identified some areas that, that they are paying particular attention to. For example, there were some instances in which broker-dealers are disclosing conflicts, but perhaps they should be mitigating them. The staff also highlighted uh, that it's not always clear how firms are considering costs uh, or reasonably available alternatives when making recommendations. So this is something that, that I think we should be looking at and paying attention to. And to the degree that there are areas of recurring risk uh, or areas that we see continuing to perhaps not meet our expectations, I think an area that might make sense is to publish a risk alert. You see these from exams uh, fairly often when there's areas of interest or when we want to inform the market. And I think uh, publishing a risk alert informing registrants where we think firms perhaps aren't understanding the rule is one thing we can do. And we can also put out best practices that we're seeing. Uh, the, vision, the division often sees things that are, uh, firms are doing really well. So as part of that risk alert, they could put out both areas that need improvement across the board, but also some best practices that they're seeing. And then obviously to the degree we find practices that are inconsistent with the rules requirements, uh, providing further guidance, either at a staff or a commission level out of the division of trading and markets, or again, at the commission level, um, could be helpful uh, in clarifying exactly what uh, our expectations are and could be another step the commission takes along with or subsequent to a risk alert. And then finally, of course, as we've touched upon, we we have enforcement tools where where that's appropriate. I'm always eager to talk about That's enforcement. Right. I know I know we're going to get there. But I, I do think the exams first approach is a good one. It actually works. I mean, I, I happen to believe that the, the periodic reports that we see from the division of exams are really helpful. I talk about them with clients. I circulate them to clients. I know that clients look to those reports to figure out what's going on in the industry. What are peer firms doing? What are the expectations of the staff? And I at least believe that it does help them make better decisions, more informed decisions um, as they think about their policies and procedures and their compliance programs, which is sort of a perfect segue to talk about what what we may or may not be seeing in the industry um, as they have now lived with this rule, uh, as you say, for about a year. Uh, so I'll, I'll put the question to you, Commissioner. Are you seeing evidence that firms have, in fact, changed their practices to comply with Reg BI? And I know you, you mentioned mitigating conflicts, so maybe that's an area, but tell us what you've observed. So again, that's one of the key questions, isn't it? I want to understand if firms are making changes to their processes. Um, and, and if they are, are those changes leading to recommendations that are actually in the investor's uh, right. best interest? Uh, and if new processes have not led to different recommendations or outcomes, do those firms' practices comply with the rule? And there's a couple of areas that 
uh, I am particularly interested in with regard to this. And so first, as you know, there's a requirement that a broker consider costs and reasonably available alternatives. So I want to understand whether firms are approaching these requirements like a checkbox exercise, or are they actually engaging in objective, uh, rigorous analysis? Uh, and how is this impacting investors? Uh, so that's one key thing that I am looking at. Second, there is, as we've touched upon, the requirement to mitigate conflicts. Uh, this is because uh, mis- misaligned incentives influence conduct. And this happens across the securities markets. Uh, so the result of that was recommendations, his- the result of that historically uh, was that recommendations uh, may not have always been in the investor's best interest. The point of one of the reasons that this rule was uh, um, contemplated and, and is now into effect. But given this, I want to understand whether firms have changed their compensation and incentive practices. In other words, we need to look at how incentives under the rule are influencing the quality of recommendations that registered representatives are providing. Uh, And ultimately, uh, we want to understand where the rule is having intended effects and where it isn't. And as you can probably tell, uh, I, I, I have more questions than answers at this point. Uh, I was not purposely evading your question, but I think, again, as, as we're still undergoing this process, those are things that I'm particularly focused on, but um, looking forward to, to having more answers on this and, and can fill you in as, as we continue to gather all this information. It sounds like we've got you. Let us know when you get all the answers, Commissioner Crenshaw. We'll have you back on and you <laughs> yeah. can just explain them all to When to I have all the answers, I'll be doing something uh, other than touched- an SEC commissioner. Maybe. Uh, You know, you touched on some of the specific market practices that are at issue with regulation best interest. And, you know, I try to think about this in in a physical kind of advice giving setting or, or, you know, how you would interact with a broker dealer in which they would either recommend a more costly alternative that benefits themselves. That's kind of the classic case, I think, of what Reg BI is looking to combat. But especially in the past few years, I think we've moved away from that kind of traditional uh, model of investing. You know, obviously, there have been a, a whole host of apps and other online platforms that folks are using to trade on their own, you know, to, to permit their own strategies. And then, you know, there's there's been a lot of news coverage and, and focus from regulators about complex products and, and the retail investor market related to, to options. You know, how do you see these issues involved in the landscape with Reg BI and with regulation generally? Apps, low-cost trading venues, and as you mentioned, the sale of complex products uh, such as options raise a lot of questions for me. First, uh, we need to think about how our existing regulatory framework applies in the context of these apps. A lot of our sales practices rules, including regulation best interest, uh, for example, apply in the context specifically of a recommendation from a financial professional to a customer. There typically isn't a financial professional working with a customer in the context of an app. Uh, However, uh, a trading app may be using behavioral prompts that raise questions about whether those activities rise to the level of a recommendation, uh, which is determined based on whether the activity could reasonably be viewed as a call to action uh, and is largely a, a facts and circumstances question. So how does the idea of a recommendation apply in the context of a trading app? Are features like 
top 10 lists recommendations. Uh, when an app gives a customer a free stock, uh, how did they choose which stock to give? Is that a recommendation? Uh, and, and the predecessor to FINRA, NASD, put out guidance 20 years ago, which actually seems relevant to, to these questions. And that guidance said that uh, producing lists that favor certain securities uh, would likely be considered a recommendation. Uh, so to the extent an app favors certain securities over others uh, by, I've already given some examples, but increasing their prominence on the app or making it easy to access those securities, you know, I think it's, I think it's a question of whether that would present similar concerns to what NASD put out 20 years ago. And, I, and that's certainly something that, that we're thinking about at the commission. And interestingly, uh, in FINRA's most recent uh, report on risk monitoring and examination activities, uh, they raised questions about new digital platforms uh, with interactive and, and game-like features. And I think FINRA stated that such features affect many aspects of how firms interact and communicate with customers. And recommendations then, and the presentation of uh, different investment choices. I think FINRA also uh, noted some questions that firms should consider when approaching their regulatory obligations. And think, uh, for example, they said something along the lines of if your firm offers an app to customers and it includes different interactive elements. I think the obligation said you need to think through or understand whether that information provided to customers uh, constitutes a recommendation under Reg BI, which brings us back to Reg BI. <laughs> and, and second and relatedly, I think there's been an increase in retail's use of options, um, particularly, as you mentioned, on apps with some of these uh, game-like features. And FINRA already has rules uh, requiring firms to exercise due diligence in approving customers for options. So we need to ensure that firms are complying with these regulatory obligations, and we need to think about how the rules are operating in our modern regime. Uh, when these rules were issued, customers likely interacted with their broker in person or over the phone. That may have facilitated robust due diligence by the broker of that particular customer. Now, when a customer wants to trade options using an app, is it a short click through a survey? If so, is that sufficient to support a determination that options trading is appropriate for that customer? I think these are the questions that, that we need to be asking and that, that we are asking and, and looking forward to thinking them through with my colleagues and the staff at the agency. This is like my favorite thing to talk about. And Chris, you're going to have to you're going to have to pull me back here. But, you know, I've been I've been thinking about these issues for a long time and I'm eager to see what comes out of the commission, you know, in the coming weeks and months and, and next couple of years. You know, I was excited last week or a couple of weeks ago, there was an SEC enforcement action. I won't ask you to comment on it against a robo-advisor, but every time one of these comes out, you know, that involves this sort of, you know, new media or new applications for, uh, for giving investment advice, I'm, I'm waiting to see when they're going to start to get at some of these core questions that, that you've raised, Commissioner. And we're, and we're not quite there yet, because I think 
we're still thinking about advice in the within the existing framework. Uh, it's interesting when that doesn't translate to these new applications. You know, I mean, the, the guidance on lists, I've been talking to clients about that for a long time at more traditional firms, and they're very aware of that, uh, of that guidance. They won't hand to their client a physical piece of paper that says, these are my top 10, you know, favorite stocks, because they know what that means from a regulatory standpoint, but that hasn't yet translated. So anyway, I'm eager to watch the space. I definitely won't ask you to comment on a particular enforcement action. And, and I can see Chris has given me the hook. So let's let's talk about no, this. I mean, if, you, if every time you tweet out one of these exciting new kind of tech or robo related enforcement actions, I just ask that you find a way to have some confetti explode over the top of it. Because I think then then I would feel more engaged and, and maybe make some decisions about it. One other element, uh, Commissioner, we wanted to touch on before moving into enforcement is um, disclosure. We talk about disclosure on this podcast all the time. It is a great way that accountants and attorneys have come together in the financial markets to agree or agree to fight about something. You recently gave a speech that is near and dear to both Kurt and my heart. Kurt, I know, was a resident of the greater London area for a few years, and and I love to travel over there. Uh, The speech was entitled Mind the Data Gaps. Those of you who've been on the, the underground know that uh, Mind the Gap is a very polite way of saying, get, get the heck out of the way of the train. But, you know, Mind the Data Gaps, you talked about the importance of investors testing for these disclosures. Can you get into a little more detail about that speech and, and where you were going with that idea? Sure. As a general matter, I think when we rely on disclosure to do the work of protecting investors, we need to ensure that investors fundamentally can read and understand the information they are given. And that's really the high level of, of, of what I'm thinking about here. But one good way to do that is to engage in investor testing. And this is, uh, for those of you who aren't really familiar with this concept, is an assessment of uh, investor comprehension, including interviews of retail investors to see if they actually are understanding the information that's in front of them. And the goal in my mind uh, should be to make sure that the disclosures uh, are understandable and accessible uh, in a way that enables informed decision-making by all. And this is something uh, that's near and dear to my heart because I get a lot of questions in my uh, military capacity. And so I really see uh, the implications of our policymaking and our disclosures uh, every day with some of my colleagues and, and investors. And so it really brings home to me the importance of this. And, and you're right, the regulation um, best interest package relies heavily on disclosure. Uh, and our reliance on disclosure in, in that rule and in many of our other important forms uh, is based on the idea that an, an effective investor protection tool uh, is this disclosure regime. But I wonder in the absence of investor testing, do we know how effective it really is? Uh, so for example, form CRS. Uh, It's taken a lot of attention. It's taken time and energy by firms. Uh, I know it's taken the commission a lot of time. Um, And it's a disclosure that is intended to provide investors uh, with information about the nature of their relationships with their investment professionals. That makes a lot of sense. Investors should be provided with information about this relationship before they're engaging with a financial professional. That way, they can actually make an informed decision about who to work with and what services to choose. That being said, uh, the final rule provided firms with significant flexibility to to design their own disclosures. Uh, And as a result, 
there was a lot of variation in firms' approaches. Yet we haven't tested the different approaches. So we don't know whether one approach is more effective than another approach or whether any of the approaches are actually serving their intended purpose. And so I believe we need to engage with investor testing of our actual forms and of the firm's actual forms in order to determine uh, just fundamentally again, whether or not they are effective. And I think this will allow us to improve the disclosures and make them useful uh, for all investors. And again, we have a array of investors, so we got to make sure it's useful for all investors. I like the concept of testing this to figure out what's working and what's not. And I would imagine through that process, the commission will learn what is adequate. And there will undoubtedly be some firms out there that aren't quite up to the standard. And that's that's potentially a problem. I've long held that there are probably some firms out there that are already obviously not getting it right, uh, and they could be targets for potential enforcement actions. And that's that's what we want to talk about next. So again, you know, thinking back to uh, some of your comments from your nomination hearing, you said something, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, to the effect that, it, you know, if firms, if they're not getting it right, if they're not following the rule, we have to be willing to hold them accountable. So give us your, your thoughts on what meaningful Reg BI enforcement might look like. So just off the bat, we have to make sure that best interest is not a slogan, right? Right. <laughs> it has to be a meaningfully higher standard than the FINRA suitability standard. And that is the standard that BI effectively replaced. So how do we do that? I think this includes making sure that firms are taking seriously their care obligation. One of the obligations under the rule is the care obligation. And they need to be exercising uh, diligence, care, uh, just to repeat the, the term already used, and skill uh, when making recommendations. And to the extent firms and their professionals are failing to act like objective experts uh, and investors are harmed as a result, uh, I think we need to uh, be willing to look at those cases. And I think it also includes making sure that firms are taking seriously uh, the conflict of interest obligations. It's something you'll hear me talk a lot about. I think that's one of the biggest areas that needs improvement. And, and I keep mentioning it because I do think it's so fundamental. So much of this issue comes down to incentives. Uh, if firms ensure that their incentives are aligned with their customers, uh, I firmly believe that they will significantly reduce the risk of being subject to an enforcement action. However, to the extent firms create and maintain misaligned incentives that are running contrary to the interests of their investors, and again, if investors are harmed, uh, I believe that will increase the likelihood that we will bring enforcement actions. Uh, so without getting too specific, I think those are things for firms, firms to think about in terms of their obligations and how enforcement, you know, how I am thinking about the enforcement context. Well, let's pull back a bit uh, more broadly. If you've listened to the podcast before, Commissioner, you know, Kurt and I love to talk about enforcement all over the map. We've done a little bit on Reg BI, but as, <laughs> as a sitting commissioner, we want your take and your opinion on the role of enforcement at the commission. You know, from a broad perspective, what do you think the the spot is for the SEC in, in the enforcement landscape? Yeah, I think you should need to start doing ding, ding, ding when I say incentives. But, you know, a strong <laughs> enforcement. We'll keep a counter for you. Don't worry. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it won't be in just this context. 
But a strong enforcement program incentivizes compliance with the securities laws. Uh, and enforcement helps to promote a market that not only inspires investor confidence, but creates a level playing field for all market participants. And I think that is a critical role of enforcement. And when our market is functioning effectively, I think businesses gain reliable access to capital. And investors then are able to share in the resulting profits and growth. Uh, so I think it's critical. And if investors believe that traditional investing is a, is a rigged game, they're going to find other ways to deploy their resources. Uh, and such pursuits may be less likely to promote efficient capital formation or fair markets. So I believe that aggressive, uh, but even-handed and fair enforcement protects law-abiding corporate citizens. I think, again, it also incentivizes everyone to behave fairly uh, and focus on the operations uh, rather than sort of this race to the bottom concept and how to get around the rules and, and how to just make the biggest, the biggest buck the fastest. Within the conversation about enforcement, um, we have to touch on this notion of it's everybody's everybody's favorite term, regulation by enforcement. Of course, we've heard an awful lot about it uh, during during the transition from the Trump to the Biden administration. And now that Chair Gensler uh, is officially in his office at the SEC, uh, in part because of his reputation as a tough enforcer when he was chair of the CFTC. You know, we, we've heard cries, uh, I'll call them preemptive cries about regulation by enforcement on a number of topics, including some of the issues that we saw play out with recent market volatility. And I'm wondering if, uh, if that term sort of uh, greats on you? Or, or, or what are your thoughts on this notion of regulation by enforcement? So honestly, I, I think this is a lot of rhetoric. I don't see regulation by enforcement. I see us enforcing regulations. It's a matter of perspective. Uh, when we enact principles-based rules, uh, as we are often encouraged to do in comment letters and uh, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, it's easy for those who want perhaps less regulation uh, to criticize enforcement and say that the commission should issue more guidance and notice instead of enforcing misconduct. And, and to be clear, I think it's important that we have clarity uh, and notice. Uh, but I think we generally do a good job at providing that. And I think the distinction here is every enforcement case involves applying the rules to a specific set of facts and circumstances. It's just the way enforcement works. So when we're talking about principles-based rules, we have to apply higher level principles to facts. Uh, so we could start by making our rules more prescriptive. We talked about, we talked about that at the beginning. I suspect if we did, we might get criticized for that too. You know, the commission's got to make the best rules it can, and it's got to interpret the facts to fit the scenario. And if we uh, decide through you know, a staff investigation over time through the process that we have at the commission and it becomes an enforcement action, uh, I think uh, we have applied the facts to the, to the rules as, as best we can. And I think we generally do a pretty good job. I would agree with you. Uh, of course, I've had cases where... I or my clients don't love the outcome, but you know, generally, 
Um, I think you're you're absolutely right. And I can imagine a situation, again, coming back to Reg BI, when we finally do see that first or those first couple of Reg BI enforcement actions, uh, there will be people that don't like the way that the staff has interpreted or applied the rule. And I'm sure that we'll hear talk about regulation by enforcement uh, or trying to redefine the scope or parameter of the rule through enforcement. I think that's a really, it's going to be a really tough argument to make given how much you've done through the exams and how much guidance is out there and how freely uh, all of the commissioners really have spoken about their views on, on regulation best interest. So I agree with you. That said, we do get to places where, you know, the the, the staff and the commission agree that that a, a corporation or, or a registered firm has done something wrong, and then we're in a posture where we need to think about penalties or what factors ought to influence uh, the decision to to impose a penalty. You recently gave a speech called "Moving Forward Together: Enforcement for Everyone." Very accessible topic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, in the in speech, you talked about the central role uh, that enforcement plays in fulfilling the SEC's mission. And you've talked about that a little bit today. Uh, but you also talked about how the commission thinks about or approaches corporate penalties in particular. Um, so would you please just sort of walk us through your thinking on the corporate penalties framework? Absolutely. Again, uh, penalties are intended to encourage compliance with our securities laws. Uh, By concentrating the costs of violating the law with the person or entity who committed the violation. And for these reasons, ensuring that penalties are uh, enough so that they have a real deterrent value rather than simply being a cost of doing business, I think is key. Uh, to protecting investors and our markets more broadly, which is why it was enforcement for everyone, even if everyone wasn't super thrilled with it. Uh, (laughs) You know, in a a 2006 statement, the commission that was sitting at that time um, suggested that when the commission is sanctioning corporations, uh, it should be careful not to impose penalties that unduly burden the shareholders of the company. And it's interesting, and it's gotten a lot of traction, but I believe this approach misses the point uh, for several reasons. Most notably, it takes away the focus uh, from the egregiousness of the misconduct. And corporate benefit calculations uh, are often incomplete. And as a result, I think this approach could lead to the perverse result of allowing shareholders to actually profit from their misconduct. And this may create less of an incentive for shareholders to invest in companies that choose to follow the law uh, if there are no repercussions for investing in those that don't. Uh, So I think uh, such an approach uh, is likely to jeopardize the integrity of our capital markets in the long term. And I believe that corporate penalties should be tied, again, to the actual misconduct, uh, not just the benefit or impact on the shareholders. To me, it's common sense and bedrock to our law enforcement regime, as I said in the speech, that worse conduct comes with stiffer penalties. This is true across the board. Uh, You get a different penalty for, you know, stealing something out of a store, a package of M&Ms, than you do for bank robbery. I think this is something that's fundamental to how we've approached our enforcement and our penalty regime across the board. And I also 
think we need to consider other factors uh, when deciding to assess penalties, including a whole host of other things, like the degree uh, to which a corporation self-reported its conduct, uh, to the degree they cooperated with investigations, and then self-remediated violations. I think we should encourage companies that demonstrate a commitment to proactively identifying and remediating wrongdoing, uh, as well as holding accountable those individuals responsible for misconduct. And I think that helps us get to an efficient resolution. And just a, a couple of other things to add quickly. I think we need to consider the extent of the harm on victims. So, you know, the egregiousness, but also the extent of harm to victims. And if we know it, uh, the number of harmed investors, uh, penalties should be higher for violations that cause more harm, either on their own or in the aggregate um, when considering their frequency. And similarly, I think we should impose higher penalties on uh, violations that are more difficult for us to detect. And this is an interesting one that folks have not paid a lot of attention to, but there is a greater need to deter conduct that requires more commission resources to uncover, investigate, and to address. So the pervasiveness or complicity within the organization, the corporate culture, uh, comes from the top, and there's a strong need to incentivize companies to foster this culture of compliance, not misconduct. If companies believe they can profit from violations and are unlikely to be caught, I think they're more likely to break the rules. So again, I think this is an important deterrent effect, and we need to be thinking about other things other than just the sort of shareholder penalty. Switching gears a bit, one of the more recent onsets that's touching a little bit on the the SEC's role as well as the markets at large are ransomware attacks. Uh, most notably, recently, the Colonial Pipeline uh, shutdown that had everyone in the southeast running for uh, for gas at their local gas station, knowing that there wouldn't be supplied for a few weeks. Ransomware is a broad topic in which someone outside of your computer system gets access to and restricts uh, your ability to utilize the files or the data that you have. And we've seen countless cases of that in companies, local governments, uh, even some federal agencies have suffered ransomware attacks. And it doesn't really just impact a single individual on their personal computer or the the company itself. With something like Colonial Pipeline, that is distributed widely across markets and impacts individuals all across the country. Uh, and it is an interesting place where the SEC has has commented or at least been aware of ransomware. But I'm interested in your take, uh, Commissioner, on how the SEC should play a role in ransomware attacks going forward. So I think we do have a role as to ransomware attacks specifically. I'm I'm confident that our partners in the criminal law enforcement working with private industry are, are, are pursuing those who are responsible and working towards some longer term solutions. So I, I think that's, that's a piece of it that's a, apart from us. But specifically to the SEC, uh, I think it's going to vary uh, according to the entity. Regulated entities within our jurisdiction have existing obligations to protect their investors' uh, data uh, safely custody assets, uh, and to have uh, effective business continuity plans. And our exams program, and also likely our enforcement program, uh, pays attention to whether regulated entities are taking reasonable steps to minimize the risk uh, and to limit any resulting harm. For reporting entities, there's an obligation to disclose certain material events, which 
may include hacking events. But I think we also need to talk about um, not just their 8Ks or the disclosure obligations when these things happen, but uh, their governance and their cybersecurity disclosures. Because as as you've mentioned and recent events demonstrate, um, ransomware attack can be extraordinarily disruptive to operations. Uh, and I think um, part of this actually is that investors are increasingly interested in how issuers address environmental, social, and governance risks or ESG risks. And I think how a firm addresses their cybersecurity issues fall squarely within the S and the G, the social and the governance. And there's, I think, growing evidence that investors are interested in knowing about data breaches and data privacy protections. We've seen cases like this for for some time now, but also in the controls issuers have in place to prevent these attacks. Uh, And in in what risk mitigation strategies are in place to help the companies manage and respond to risks created by cyber attacks. And I know I'm certainly interested in learning more about how cybersecurity policies are impacting investors. Uh, That information helps inform what steps the SEC could take to facilitate disclosure uh, or decision-useful information to make sure investors are uh, one protector to have the information they need when making investment decisions. And just lastly, part of this, I think um, I'll, I'll raise this at, at, at my own peril, but I think there's also the issue of digital assets. And I am uh, particularly troubled by reports I've read recently regarding investors who, because of hacking, lose control of their accounts to digital asset exchanges. And I think investors have complained about this. I think they've called and told the exchange that their accounts have been hacked, but the exchanges have not necessarily locked the accounts right away to prevent additional assets from being taken. And so it's it's unclear to me exactly um, which regulator right now, if any, uh, has jurisdiction over digital asset exchanges. Uh, But I think this is a regulatory gap uh, that should be addressed because I I think investors are paying a price right now. I'm wondering if you're getting calls from folks at DarkSide who are complaining that they've been hacked by the Department of Justice to recover the Bitcoins that were paid in the in the ransomware. Do you care to comment on, on any of those reports? <laughs> I, I won't comment on those reports today. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> Just referencing earlier this week that uh, the money paid by Colonial Pipeline, much of which was recovered through the Department of Justice efforts following that that digital asset uh, trail through there. So I'm making light of, of a serious issue, but but seeing some, some approaches there that are beneficial to recover recovery. All right, Kurt, I think it's time that we jump into a little bit of a lighter segment. Daniel, if you will, hit the music. And hitting the music, actually, uh, Commissioner, is one of the things we want to talk to you about today. Some of the folks on your staff mentioned that you are a fan of the song and dance of musical theater. And we'd like to to hit on that. Kurt and I are both uh, kind of musical theater fans. We actually gave a presentation uh, a few months ago that we talked about the internal investigations landscape, and we named the presentation Into the Woods, uh, which is a, a, a nod to Stephen Sondheim and, and the musical that he put together that mixed uh, all of the childhood fairy tales into one cohesive story. Uh, so we'd like to talk to you, Commissioner, about the today's securities and regulatory landscape with the lens of famous characters and musicals from Broadway. Uh, of oh, course, 
knowing me <laughs> as, as the resident accountant, Commissioner Crenshaw, I'm sure you can guess what one of my favorite musicals is. Oh, boy. Oh, uh, putting you on the spot here. I'll give you the answer. The best accounting musical out there is The Producers. Ah, of course. The Producers. Course. That's right. So the plot revolves around an established Broadway producer who's down on his luck. Uh, enlisting the help of an accountant with an interest in, in musical theater to raise millions of dollars to put on not a successful play, but a flop in which they will abscond with the invested proceeds. Um, it's a bit of a meta take on Broadway productions uh, and, and ethics, uh, but the characters eventually find that their can't hit musical takes off and becomes very popular, leading to a comedy of errors that involves them being arrested, a prison sentence, and then a little bit of a rehabilitation post-prison and, and the writing of a new musical. So I like to think of this in, in shorthand, the plot of the producers, as kind of a pump-and-dump style investment fraud scheme, <laughs> where a knowing investment advisor, if we assume uh, Bialystok and Bloom are, are playing that role, uh, are soliciting investment uh, from investors, uh, unwitting investors, and then profiting from those investors' loss. Do you see that as a similar comparison? And if so, what would you have told those investors to do uh, to better understand their investment in springtime for Hitler the musical? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I will comment that producers is, is one that I think um, that when it transitioned to film, uh, actually got as much or more attention as, as the stage version. And uh, that doesn't always happen. So I will say my, my interest is often on the stage version, not the, um, of course. the movie version, but that is a, an unusual one. What should those investors have done? Uh, they should have been gone to investor.gov, uh, which is the SEC's... Shameless uh, plug, uh, shameless plug. <laughs> the SEC's website, uh, which helps investors understand the risks of various investment opportunities, uh, as well as how to make sure that their broker is is registered, uh, that their advisor is registered. So, so that's what I would have advised. That, that may be a statement that your commissioners and the staff would agree with, uh, commissioners. So. <laughs> That's Perhaps. Excellent. That's right. All right. It, it's my turn to get in on this, and uh, I'm not throwing away my shot. <laughs> oh, I know it's bad. Uh, Hamilton took the theater world by storm in 2015 and was released as a Disney Plus movie last year during the pandemic. Hamilton, of course, features the origin story of Alexander Hamilton, our first Secretary of the Treasury, and his career as a founding father, and his untimely death by a duel at the hands of Aaron Burr. Spoiler alert, Kurt. Sir. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, the first cabinet battle rap features this line from Alexander Hamilton debating Thomas Jefferson about the choice to form a federal financial system. Uh, and apologies for this terrible rendition. Uh, if we assume the debts, the union gets new line of credit, a financial diuretic. How do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost. You'd rather give it a sedative. That, I mean, we got to get you on the audition tape, Kurt. <laughs> With that in mind, Commissioner, what do you think Alexander Hamilton... Uh, would think about our current regulatory landscape. And you can go in any direction with that. Uh, but, you know, how would he look at the regulatory world that's grown up since his time? When I saw Hamilton, I actually ran into many of our uh, my fellow SEC uh, staff, uh, which was great. So we could have other folks that have views on this. Although recently with my son, I've been listening to more of Maui from Moana mm. and those raps. 
I think, you know, it's the aggressive nature I think is important. The competition I think is important. And I think this all, uh, I think this all overlays with our securities markets. Uh, as we've talked about today, I think um, we need to make sure that we are enforcing the laws uh, on the books and, and enforcing them in a way that ensures fair, orderly and efficient markets. Um, and so that everyone has a level playing field. Uh, competition is an issue we haven't talked on, but we could do a whole nother uh, uh, podcast on the issue of, <laughs> of competition. Um, and I think that's actually a critical thing that we need to be looking at. We have uh, a lot of areas, we have many areas in our markets that uh, are, are really consolidated. And I think that's something we need to be thinking about. Uh, do we need an office of competition at the Securities and Exchange Commission? I think that's that's certainly an area that we need to be thinking about. And, and I think um, I'm looking forward to working with my fellow commissioners. I think we have uh, have not taken a sedative and, and are actively looking to move forward and making sure that we are appropriately protecting investors and promoting capital formation. That's great. Oh, yeah, one more for you, Commissioner. Uh, I was fortunate enough as a theater kid in my earlier life to participate in a high school production of the musical Crazy For You, which was a revival of the early 20th century uh, Gershwin edition called Zangler's Follies. The story follows Bobby Child, a banker whose heart longs for the stage in his repossession of a bankrupt theater in the somewhat rural town uh, of Dead Rock, Nevada. When he arrives, he realizes the town is full of theatrical talent and hatches a plan to renovate the decrepit theater and entice a big-time New York City producer to put on a show to benefit the financial situation of the theater and the town. Through their rehearsal efforts and enthusiasm, as well as a particularly strange doppelganger situation, Bobby and his friends succeed in revitalizing the town and putting on a successful show. Bobby succeeded because of his ability to recognize previously unidentified talent in Dead Rock. Commissioner, where do you see unrecognized talent in today's regulatory and enforcement environment? So I tried out for Cosette on Broadway when I was approximately eight years old. Excellent. Referencing Les Miserables, of course. Yes, this is part of uh, Les Miserables. So I would say, sitting right here in this office, uh -oh. there is unrecognized Excellent. talent in the regulatory world. <laughs> However, and I was very confident when I was eight that I was going to succeed mm -hmm. in this and that I was going to be uh, Cosette on Broadway. Uh, my parents, knowing that I was going to fail miserably uh, and never had a chance of getting the role of Cosette, uh, actually uh, let me take the day off school to go try out for this. Uh, they were fully supportive. They said I was great, uh, knowing full well that this would be a life lesson in learning to fail uh, on my own. So this is my response of where I think there's hidden talent in the regulatory regime, um, but the Broadway producers and directors and my parents all, all disagree perhaps with my singing and dancing and uh, general stage ability. Well, th this could be your platform if you want to do a rendition of uh, Castle on the Cloud, you know, you uh, yeah, can go for it. We've got enough tape to roll <laughs> I, if you I, like. I, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> I really only like to go there Un in my sleep. Understood. So. understood. <laughs> I love it. Well, Commissioner, we, you know, we, we want to wrap up today's episode and give you a chance. Any final thoughts on, on our discussions today? Uh, I'd prefer if you didn't, again, reference a certain regulation that Kurt loves to talk about with two short initials. But we want to give you an opportunity and a platform to, to share any parting thoughts here. 
You know, I will, I will just reiterate uh, in all seriousness that um, I, I think Reg BI uh, regulation best interest is going to be uh, critical to investors moving forward. Um, you know, we need investors uh, in the future to be able to build their nest egg um, so that they can actually retire. So they're not chasing yield um, uh, when they're about to retire in products that aren't necessarily the right ones for them and losing everything they have saved. Uh, we need investors to understand this risk. We need investors to be getting the best advice. Uh, you know, we don't really have uh, pension plans the way, mm-hmm. w- way we used to with companies uh, actually sort of taking care of this for you and making sure you have this nest egg. Given that, I think to me, to me um, best interest is critical. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with exams, uh, working with our staff, working with my fellow commissioners to make sure uh, that we are uh, giving it um, um, the meaning that was intended uh, when it was passed. Uh, and I, I do think that that's, um, uh, it's, again, it's going to take us some time, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing if it can, can have the, the promise that it was uh, held out to have when, we, uh, when the commission first passed it. That's great. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We really appreciate the time and, and your insights. And we look forward to having you back on when you do get all of those answers that we talked about earlier. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Well, thanks for having me, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw of the SEC. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.